We are in Romans chapter 5 this morning, continuing on in our series. Let me encourage you to go ahead and flip to the scripture. Uh, Romans chapter 5 will be in verses 1 through 11 uh, today as we study. Uh, as we've studied, this, is, this has been a series that we've been seeking to really define and just clearly articulate our essential doctrines, the things that bind us together as believers, the things that uh, uh, unite us not just as a local church, but with believers, uh, well, in history. Um, God is perfect. He is holy. He's righteous. In Him, there is no sin. He never lied. He's never done any evil thing. He's great. He's glorious. He's good. And He is gracious. That is where our study began. Really articulating, really seeking to know God in in, in the essentials of it. Um, we, we were created in His image. He we, we were to be representatives in his creation as we ruled and subdued. We were to f- multiply and fill the earth so that his likeness, so that his image would be visible everywhere in his creation, uh, in every corner of his creation. That's what we've studied to this point. We've studied it from the Bible. The scripture, God's word is truth. It's not always easy for us to accept. It's not always easy for us to agree with. It does not always fit our perspective, but it comes from God's perspective, a higher, more insightful perspective. He has revealed it to us, brought brought it to us. It's his word, so it's truth. We seek to submit under it. But here's the problem. (laughs) We don't. We have rebelled. We went our own way. We defined our own path. We decided to be our own God. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. All of us, it says. It says no one seeks after God, that no one is good, no one is righteous. That it, it teaches that every one of us are worthless. Every last one of us. Those are words the Bible uses that speak of us in our sin. Our only hope is that our God saves. That's the only hope we have. Now, again, I know that doesn't, that doesn't make us feel warm and fuzzy. That's not the, oh, man, you did not even, well, I tried to make you laugh with a trophy first, so we're, we're there. This, this is not an easy place to start. I, wanna, I, I, I own that. I admit that. But this is where we have to start. Because if we're going to really understand salvation, we're going to have to understand why we need to be saved. Our only hope is that our God saves. From our church statement of faith, it reads this way. Salvation is a gift given only by God's kindness, mercy, and grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mankind's sin has doomed them to hell Jesus took that sin upon himself and died in our place on a cross. We believe that this gift is not deserved and cannot be earned, but can only be accepted by faith. We believe salvation ultimately results in eternal life in God's presence. However, salvation also marks the beginning of a journey in which God adopts us as his children, decrees that we are free from sin, and begins a process of making us into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. It's this salvation... That's the focus of our study from the scriptures today. What does the Bible teach us about salvation? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. Romans 5, 1, 11. We'll read it, we'll pray, and then we'll dig in. The word says, Therefore, 
Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through, <clears throat> through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Better read that again. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Just make a quick point there. If you claim Christ... At one point, you have to realize you were the ungodly that he's speaking of. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you claim Christ, you have to recognize you were a sinner that he died for. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for your salvation. I'm so grateful of the work you've done to save me and my brothers and sisters, to redeem a people to yourself that we would have the hope of living with you face to face throughout all eternity, that we would be near you, that we would be blessed by you, that we would be at peace with you, that we would be counted righteous by you, that we would be um, uh, able to rejoice and enjoy you. I'm grateful that you didn't hide this work, but that you have made it known so that even now, in this moment, today, not waiting for some distant moment when we face death, but even now, we can rejoice. I pray by your word today that your spirit would work and would move us to rejoicing. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. We believe God saves sinners from his wrath by their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This would be a summation or a summarization of our view of salvation. We believe God saves sinners from his wrath by their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe, and I think I can show you, that that's exactly what's being taught here by Paul in Romans chapter 5. In broader speaking, in broader terms, he's teaching that across the whole book of Romans. And in broader terms, that's what every New Testament writer sought to teach. And in broader terms, the whole of the scripture, the whole of the Bible is to point us to our need for salvation and God's provision of it. We believe God saves sinners from his wrath by their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a pretty opinion. It's, it's not a popular opinion. It isn't easy to discuss and, and it shouldn't be discussed whimsically. God will judge and condemn sinful people. God's wrath is real and he has every right to express that wrath. 
He is not being evil or wicked in expressing his wrath against a rebellious and sinful people. The truth that the Bible teaches is that our sin has separated us from him. That we are his enemies outside of Christ. His wrath is revealed against our sin. David, writing in Psalm 51, he is both lamenting and repenting of his adulterous and murderous affair. You know the story of Bathsheba? He saw her on top of a roof. He lusted after her. He pursued her. He had her. She was a married woman. She gets pregnant. And he decides, oh, let's, let's make sure that her husband comes home so it looks like that kid is his. That's, I mean, that's soap opera stuff, right? Like that's stuff that's happened on the days of our lives in General Hospital. This is David, king of the Jews, right? Like this is the guy that, that God said was a man after his own heart. This man was wicked. And when her husband turns out to be a pretty honorable guy and won't go and spend time with his wife because his compatriots, the other soldiers, are out at war, David says, okay, well, we'll take care of this. He sends him back to the front line and orders his generals to pull their people back so that this poor man is standing out there all by himself and he ends up killed. King David, lamenting and repenting over this murderous, adulterous, deceitful affair calls out for mercy and in so doing he confesses i was conceived in sin just like the rest of us from the very moment of his conception he had fallen short of the glory of god it wasn't what he had done it was simply because he was born as a fallen human being here's a maybe what i think will be uh, both helpful and freeing we don't sin and become sinners. We sin because we are sinners, because we are born this way. Your children, Lord love them, are as sweet as they can be, come out self-centered. They only care about themselves. They don't cry because they love you. They cry because they need you. And they don't care what you're doing. Because all they can think about is themselves, their empty bellies, their dirty butts, whatever else is going on in their little world. And unless the Lord changes that heart, that's the heart that matures. This is what the Bible teaches. Our only hope is that the same God whose wrath is being revealed against our sin is the same God whose love, whose mercy and grace save sinners like us. That's it. Now, Paul starts here in Romans chapter 1 when he lists out all these different ways in which his, uh, all the different reasons for God's wrath. We've believed lies. We've worshipped the creation rather than the creator. We've displaced lies with, or truth with lies. We've worshipped the creator, the creation instead of the creator. We have then been given over our foolishness has, has just consumed con, uh, us. We call our foolishness wisdom, that we live in ways that are absolutely dishonorable, that he says are sin. And Paul demonstrates in Romans chapter 1 that God's wrath is justified. Our only hope that the same God whose wrath is being revealed against mankind is that this same God is also filled with love perfect example of mercy and grace and he saves sinners like us
This is what we believe. We believe God saves sinners from his wrath by their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's, I believe, what's at the heart of Romans chapter 5. As we walk through it, I'm going I'm to present it from two different perspectives. We're going to kind of address it from two different views. One is some salvation accomplished and received. How is salvation accomplished and received? And the second way we'll deal with it is what, has, what have we been saved from and what have we been saved to? As each one has three points. We'll spend more time in the first and a little less time is required for the second. But that's the two different perspectives we'll, we'll approach it from. So salvation is accomplished and received. How is that happening? First, let me just say, in this passage, I would suggest that we see that salvation is God's work and gift. It is God's work and it is God's gift. Look at this passage and tell me who is doing the work of salvation. Who is doing the work of justification? Who is making peace? Who is is the one that is accomplishing something in this passage over and over and over again, all the way through, it is God. Every passage about God's saving work, every passage about what God has done for sinful people is the same way. There is never a passage in the scripture which describes us working our way to salvation. There is never a passage in the scripture that speaks as if we can earn or deserve anything good from God. Salvation is always his work and it is then his gift to give. He is not obligated to save anyone. You understand that. You don't deserve to be saved. You cannot merit salvation and he is not obligated to do it. But it's his nature. Look, look at me. Look, look at this passage. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How could that be? Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace. He's working on our behalf for our good. Not only that, but, but we have hope. And not only that, but we now have, have the, the, the confidence of his love that's been poured upon us, poured into us by his Holy Spirit. This is God working to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. But it's his nature. I was, I was having this conversation yesterday. Caleb and I were tearing down walls in his house. If you need some way to relieve aggression, maybe he's got some more walls that need to be torn down. He might let you kick a hole in one. It's kind of fun. But that's not the, that's not the point. We were having this conversation about salvation, and, and, and we, we, we stumbled onto the fact that we talk about conditional love or unconditional love. We talk about how God's love is unconditional, about how, how we receive it so freely. But that's not really a good description of his love. His love is absolutely conditional. It's just not conditional upon you. It's conditional upon him. It's conditional upon his nature. It's conditional upon his holiness. It's conditional upon his mercy. It's conditional upon his graciousness. It's conditional upon his perfect, holy, righteous nature. God has conditioned his love and his salvation of sinners upon himself. The reason salvation is a work, the reason salvation is a gift for him to give is because of who he is, not because of who we are. Let me just show you this again in another passage, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. 
It says this, and you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at, now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So here we are. Let me just point this out just really quickly before we move on. Here we are, following after the course of the world, following after the prince of the power of the air, running after the passions of our flesh, our flesh, the world, the devil. They, they are consuming us. They are tearing us down because we were dead. We were dead in the trespasses and sins. What does that mean? You were dead. That's what it means. You were powerless. You were zombies walking around as if you had thought, as if you had purpose, as if you had meaning in your life. But you were consumed with one driving influence, the world. And one driving influence, the the prince of the power of the air. One driving influence, the, the, the passions of your flesh. Listen, it goes on. Among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We didn't become children of wrath once we sinned. We were by nature. This is who we were, like the rest of mankind. Now, if that's where it ended, and Paul didn't have another word to say, that'd be pretty hopeless. That's not where it ends. Verse 4, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God is doing the work of salvation, and he gives it as a gift. It's his work to accomplish. It's his nature that motivates the work. It's his nature that brings it as a gift. Picture Jonah. Sinking to the bottom of the sea. He's not thrashing about another part of our conversation Caleb and I are having. He's not thrashing about at the top of the water. Save me, save me. No. He's sinking to the bottom of the sea. How do we know that? Because when he prays and thanks God for this fish that swallowed him in the middle of the sea, he talks about the fact that he was lower than the depths of the, 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 the mountains at depth. The weeds, the, the, the seaweed was around his ankles, he says. He was dead and he was powerless to do anything about it except that this big fish appointed by God swallows him up and suddenly the inside of the fish in its belly is the best place for Jonah to be thank God he says and then he proclaims salvation belongs to the Lord because this is what God does salvation is God's work it is God's gift Over and over, this is what we see the Bible teaching. Salvation is mediated through through Christ alone. Salvation's mediated through Christ alone. Look back at the passage. What is done in this passage that's not associated with the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, if you look and you pay attention, you're going to see that salvation is a Trinitarian work. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all represented in this passage. In, in, in verse 10, we have the Father represented. Look, look at what it says. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. So who's that making reference to? God the Father, right? So, so, so if we're reconciled to God the Father by His Son, we look at verse 5. It's speaking of the Holy Spirit. It, 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is a Trinitarian work. God is doing the work. God the Father decrees it, sends the Son, and we're reconciled to the Father. The Holy Spirit applies salvation to our life. He, he comes and lives within us. He, he makes it real. The Holy Spirit applies that salvation to each person. But it's through the Son that all of this is made possible. Justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him. Through Him. Talking about Jesus Christ. In verses 1, verse 2, verse 6, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11. Over and over and over, Jesus Christ is demonstrated to be the central mediating factor through which salvation is accomplished. Salvation is a Trinitarian work, but it is mediated to us. All that means is Jesus stands between us and God. He stands as our mediator. He stands as the person who we enter into relationship with God through. Jesus died so that God could remain righteous. And Jesus died so that we could be made righteous. He stands in that mediating position. Standing before holy, righteous God the Father, eternal God, His Father. He says, I'll die for you. So that as you forgive sins, you remain righteous. You remain good. And then He stands before us and He says, look at me. I will die so that as you believe, you can be made Righteous. You can become what you've never been. You can be called innocent. In a court of law, the gavel would fall and you would be called not guilty. There's no sin held against you. No condemnation for you. Because Jesus stands between us and the Father. This is what Paul is getting at. This is what Paul is explaining to us. Let me break it out a little further. Romans 3. He's already made this argument. Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. We, he's saying the same things. We're, we're, we're working at it from different perspectives. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, it's a satisfaction, that's all that word means. He is satisfied by his blood to be received by faith. Listen, this is important. This was to show God's righteousness. If God forgave sins, if God overlooked sins, if God did not deal with sins in the way that they deserved, he would no longer be righteous. He would be a sinner himself. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He'd been dealing with sinful people and not condemned them or killed them, sent them away. But he continued to work in our world so that he could bring his son So that he could provide salvation. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just. So that he might remain innocent. And call us innocent. He he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. He would remain innocent as he says we're innocent. Now just imagine this. You're guilty. Standing in a court of law. And you know you're guilty. And the judge knows you're guilty. And the jury knows you're guilty. And all the evidence demonstrates you're guilty. And yet they look at you and say, you're innocent. 
What does that make them? A liar. If God had called us innocent and not had some way to make that innocence real, he'd be no God that could save. He wouldn't be a God we'd want to be saved by. See, Jesus' death, it maintains God's righteousness while it makes sinners righteous. Now, the view of this death, the view of this work is Jesus' atonement is called penal substitutionary atonement or substitutionary atonement. But, but let me just define that for you. It would be helpful, I think, as you think through this later. This is the position that historically that, that has been held. Christ's death was penal in that he bore a penalty when he died. He did not just simply die as a criminal for no reason. He was there as your representative taking your penalty from God. In fact, he spoke of drinking the, the cup of God's wrath. He drank every last drop for you. His death was also a substitution in that it was substitute. It was a substitute for us when he died. He did that in our place. He was our substitute. Where I should have died and drunk the cup of God's wrath, he did it for me. He took the penalty and he substituted. He stood in my place for my sin. He did the same for you. Sin demands death, so Jesus had to die. If he hadn't died in our place and for our sin, God couldn't be both righteous and justifier or or anyone who calls anyone else righteous this had to happen salvation and we see it here in this passage is mediated through christ alone there is no other mediation there is no other way in which we can be saved there is no other name that provides salvation salvation is received by faith alone so we see god working salvation gifting salvation we see god our, our salvation mediated through Christ alone, and we see now salvation accomplished and received by faith alone. This, look at the passage in the, in the role of faith. We're justified by faith. Now, this, this, this is a continuation. You see the therefore, in verse 1 it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that therefore connects us to chapter 4, and chapter 4 is an explanation of how we are connected to Abraham, that we are saved Not because we're born of Abraham, but because we have faith like Abraham. We trust God the same way Abraham trusted God. That's the idea. So we are justified like Abraham's justified. We are counted innocent in the same way that Abraham is counted innocent. That's the point that Paul's making by faith. It it doesn't stop there, though. Continuing on in verse 1. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So because we're justified, we now have peace. Because we have faith, we've been justified, and we have peace with God. We are no longer enemies with Him. We're no longer on the opposite line of the front lines. He is no longer opposed to us. He's no longer against us. He, we, we are with Him. We've been brought to His side. We have peace. There is no conflict between us and God any longer. And that's accomplished through our faith but but it goes on in verse 2 through him we've also obtained access how by faith into this grace 
faith becomes a vehicle by which we're able to enjoy God's grace. And it continues to unfold in how we have hope in the glory of God. And, 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 and even in our sufferings, we're not, we're not in despair, but we are able to have hope that we're able to look forward to what's to come because Jesus died for us while we were sinners. And if he died for us while we were sinners, how much more will we gain from him because we've been, now been reconciled to him? There's this whole thing is, is, is brought to us by faith. Well, what is that? What is it to have faith? That's a pretty important question. If that's the way that I receive God's gift of saving work, if that's the way that I'm able to enjoy the mediating work of Jesus Christ, that's a pretty important question. What is faith? It equals trust. To to trust something, we have to have knowledge and we have to know it. We have to have the information that we can know. We must affirm that we know it's true. We must be able to say, yeah, I I agree, That's, that's true. But it doesn't stop there. Even the, it, James tells us, James 2.19, I think it is, I've written it down somewhere. D- James 2.19, the demons know and affirm God's truth. They know and affirm God's truth. That's not enough. That's not faith. We, must, we also have to entrust ourselves to it. We must know it, we must affirm it's true, and then entrust ourselves to it. I like this. It's simple imagery. It's a silly little cliche example, but the idea of you sitting back in those chairs. Go ahead. Lean back. Kick your feet up. Take a load off. Do you feel at risk in any way? Do you, I mean, are you holding yourself up at all in this moment? You came in, you looked at the chair, they're made out of metal, and they seem pretty sturdy. I don't see any of you about to jump up because you think they're going to drop you on the floor. Our old chairs, now that'd be a different story. That really did happen. None of you on the edge of your seat thinking that this thing's about to dump you out in the middle of the floor. You've entrusted yourself to it. Another picture of that is crutches. Every time a person leans in on those crutches and they kick off with their good foot and they're protecting their bad foot and every time they swing through and they're resting on those, they've entrusted themselves to those crutches. One of the clearest lessons, one of the clearest ways I've ever learned this was when I was in the military. I was in, at Fort Campbell was my last duty station and I was uh, going through air assault school. So here, here's the deal. I was a crew chief. I was a door gunner. There was never going to be a chance that I was about to rappel out of a helicopter. If it was going down, I was going down. I was never getting out to go fight in the weeds and the bush. That wasn't my job. But everybody had to do it. So I had to learn how to rappel out of a helicopter. And, and it was fun. I'm not trying to complain about it. It was, it was a blast. But I had to learn how to rappel out of a helicopter. Now, I had rappelled, and we had trained on walls and things like that. It was, that that's easy. Rock, rock side of a side of a cliff, not not a big deal. I'd learned to trust equipment in that way, but it suddenly changes when you're 40 feet off the ground. Rotor wash is blowing all over you. You got a, a gun hanging about three feet below you, pulling at the top of your body. Your rucksack weighs about 40 or 50 pounds, and you're hanging out the side of the door. The the jump master or the 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 guy that's instructing us, he says, "Okay, it's your turn. Hook up." And you got this process, and you start to click in, and then you're about to take your L position, hanging out that door. And you're about to entrust yourself to that rope, those pilots, that helicopter, 
and it gets really real. I knew that those things would hold me. I'd seen 15, 20 other guys go before me. It was going on at Fort Campbell all the time. We, we saw it happen. Like we would go into the field. I was a crew chief and guys would rappel out of helicopters while I was sitting in there laughing at them. <laughs> I get to stay up here. I, I knew what that was about. But there's a different thing in knowing it and affirming it's true and then entrusting yourself to it. When you jump out and you feel that first 10 feet go by, you got to get far enough out so that you don't smack your head on the helicopter when you swing back in. But you don't want to go so far that you swing back in and hit the person on the other side because there's people going out both sides of the helicopter. There's this real sense of, whoo, man, I hope this thing catches me. You entrust yourself to it. That's faith. That's the idea. The beauty is that our God has shown himself to be sovereign, mighty, all-powerful. He is always going to catch you. He is trustworthy. At some point, these helicopters break. Ropes snap. There might be a little reason to be afraid. But with him, we can entrust ourselves to him completely. In fact, the idea of trusting Christ, just think about this. The idea of looking at the cross of Christ and saying that is the payment for my sin isn't just trusting Jesus. It is trusting the God who has worked and gifted salvation. It is trusting the God who has mediated salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. It is entrusting yourself to the only one who can certainly with a surety say you are safe. That is faith. But, but, but just let me, let, let, let me make sure you get this because here's the reality. There's a lot of people, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, man, we agree with it. We, we know it. We believe it. Yes, we agree with it. 54% of Americans agree with this. That God counts a person as righteous not because of one's work, but only through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. 58% of Americans agree that only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation 63 of americans 63% of americans agree that jesus jesus christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of sin and you say well isn't that the same thing over and over yeah it is but there's a little bit of variance in this same study in the same set of questions in the same uh, survey 54% of Americans, 58% of Americans, 63% of Americans, the majority of Americans agree with this. Do you think it's demonstrated in the entrusting, do you think the majority of Americans are entrusting their life to this? I'm glad I'm not the one that makes that decision. But I wonder if our country would look a little different if the majority of people entrusted rather than just simply having knowledge and affirming truth. I can't help but wonder if it wouldn't look different. Faith. It is by faith. But, but, but before we move on, I just want, to want one last little piece about faith. I want us to remember it is not the faith as much as it is the object of that faith. There's a lot of things we can believe in. The object matters. But Spurgeon, writing in his morning and evening, uh, I think this is from June 22nd, writes, Remember, therefore, 
It is not thy hold of Christ. For those of you that don't speak King James, that's your hold. It is not your hold of Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to thy hand, which thou art grasping Christ, as to Christ. Look not to thy hope, but to Jesus, the source of thy hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Your faith is important, but it is only as powerful as the thing in which you place it. The object of your faith is what matters. The mediator is Jesus. The the worker of salvation is God. The giver of the gift of salvation is God. Who will you trust? In what are you going to believe? In what are you going to entrust yourself? Him and his work or you and yours? It is not your faith. It is the object of your faith that matters most. Salvation is received by faith alone through Christ alone. The mediator who mediates God's work for us. Now, to this point, we've talked about how salvation was accomplished. We've talked about, okay, this is the way God's done it. This is how he's, he's made it function, and this is how we receive it. But there's more here. It, we're not just, we, we need more than mechanics. What, what are we saved from and what are we saved to? That's the, that's the second half. And be much quicker and be, be much more concise. We've set out a, a bunch of foundational work. It'll help us move through here a little faster. Salvation reconciles sinners to God. That's what we've seen over and over through this passage. We have peace with God. It ends with speaking of our reconciliation to God. In Christ, our relationship to the Creator is made good. We're removed from wrath, and we're brought to a place of peace, uh, recipients of His grace. We're, we're no longer enemies, but we're citizens of His kingdom. And if, if you read Paul's language in Ephesians, it's not just citizens of a kingdom, it's children of the King. We're, we're, not, we're, we're not distant from Him, we're members of His household. We're, we're, we're not alienated and strangers, we are children We are the dwelling place of God. We are reconciled to him so that he is our God and we are his people. Salvation reconciles sinners to God. We're we're no longer what we were. We're no longer distant from him. We're no longer in the position. We are with him. Salvation redeems people from sin. Redemption carries with it a, a sense of payment. We've talked about that through Christ. His death on the cross paid for our sin. Excuse me. His work, it paid the sin debt for us. The picture is of people who are enslaved. The picture is of people who are in bondage, who have no ability to change their position at all. They are enslaved to sin. They don't sin and become sinners. They sin because they are by nature sinners. That's the picture. And Jesus comes in and says, I'm going to buy you out. Who's he paying? Who, who, who has, who's the offended party? Who's the one in whom we've sinned against? God. He dies in our place for our sin. He takes God's wrath. He buys our place in heaven. It still plagues us. And go back to Ephesians 1, 2 through, or Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. The, the world, the flesh, the devil. These, th- they, 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 these three things, they still plague us. 
We still have passions of the flesh that lead us away from God. We still have an influential world that seeks to get us to live and, and, and affirm their ways of living. We still have a spiritual enemy that is after us to dishonor God. They plague us, but they will never define us again. They never hold us in bondage ever again. We have been redeemed. We have been bought out of that life. And so while they now might nip at our heels and cause us some trouble, they will never rule us again. They will never define us because we have been redeemed. Salvation, it displaces despair with hope. I don't know how else to do this except to just walk through it. You just think about what this passage would sound like if we took away any saving, any saving work of God from God. What would it be when we get to the passage that speaks of suffering? But we rejoice in our sufferings. That could never be. Now, <laughs> we, we would face suffering and we would think there's just more suffering coming. There would be no production of good things through suffering. There would be no hope, no, no endurance, no, 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 no character, no, no hope being produced. There would be nothing. But because of God's saving work, we have been saved from the despair that our suffering brings to the hope of eternal life. If he died for us while we were sinners... How much more will, will, will we expect him to work for us now that we have been reconciled to him? Now that we are no longer distant from him, how much more can we expect him to do? The, the beauty of this passage is that as we look at this world, the difficulties we face, the struggles that we, that we have, the, the realities of the world around us. They don't, end, they, they don't define us. They, it doesn't end here. Over and over and over, because of what God has done, it speaks of rejoicing. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, verse 2. Not only that, he says in verse 3, we rejoice in suffering. Because our suffering ends in hope, and it's hope that will not disappoint. How, I, 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 how can this hope not disappoint? I mean, look at what I'm facing. Do you know what's going on in my life? Yeah, that hope won't put you to shame. Because you never have to doubt the love of God. You never have to question whether he loves you again. Every time, every time that doubt comes up, every time that question arises, all you have to do is think, he sent his son to die for me. The cross has proven his love for you forever. You don't have to question it. God, do you you know what I'm going through? Do Do you love me? Do you even care? Yes, I sent my son. And hey, by the way, this suffering isn't going to end in destruction. This suffering is going to produce in you endurance. It's going to make you stronger. It's going to produce in you character. It's going to make you more like me. It's going to produce in you a confident expectation that the day you die, you'll find me there. We'll never hope or we'll never suffer in vain again. In verse 11, more than that, as if that's not enough, as as if what he's done for us through Jesus Christ isn't enough, more than that, we rejoice in God. 
Not, not only do we get to rejoice in all the gifts he gives us, not only do we get to rejoice in the fact that he is doing this work for us and on our behalf, but we get to rejoice in him, the eternal creator of all things, the God who has power to make light shine where there was no light, the God who is able to send his son to stand in our place and die for our sins, the God who, who, whose power raised Christ from the dead. That God says, you are mine. You get to rejoice in him. Not simply what he gives you, but you are his and he is yours. And nothing can change that. that is the, that's the source of our joy. And all of this rejoicing, all of this rejoicing is, is, is founded on the fact that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And we have entrusted ourselves to him. See, salvation, it, it displaces despair with, with hope. It gives us reason to celebrate instead of fall down on our faces and cry. I, I know the stories of the people in this room. I, I know your struggles. They do not define you. They are not the end of you. The Lord will use them for his glory and your good. Your father, he loves you. You are no longer faced with despair. But brother and sister, be filled with this hope. God saves sinners from his wrath. It is never wrath that we will experience ever again. Jesus has taken that from us as we entrust ourselves, as we express our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me encourage you. With all that you are, with all that you have, with every ounce of your, every, every ounce of your will, every ounce of your, your, your sense of person, every ounce of your strength, entrust yourself to him. There is no other Let's pray.